Another edition of the Behind the You podcast. You Fit Gyms, proud sponsor of the Behind the You podcast. You can train together, win together. Introducing You Fit Gyms as the official fitness center for the Miami Hurricanes. Are you ready to join? All it takes is a dollar. How about that? Let's go, Canes. Bernard Tiger Clark Jr., head coach, Robert Morris, four-year institution, university. <laughs> exactly. There we go. There All we right. Go. Now we're rolling. So, Tiger, let's start here. I try and do as much research as I can for these, and I've watched a lot of your interviews. I grew up in Miami. I know about the Orange Bowl in 88. I know about those teams. I know about your head coach. I know about your personalities, their personalities. That's where swag started. Are you the same person from back then as you are now? Because I oh, feel like you're two different people. <laughs> Absolutely not. There's no way I'd be married if I was the same person I was <laughs> back then. So I'm a totally different person in a good way. I figure if you're the same person you were at 23, now that I'm 55, you haven't done any expanding, any growing, any, Yeah, but that's anything. not quite what I meant. You know that. No, I know. I'm just messing with you. As far as the excitement, as far as being dedicated to what I love, that's college football, yes, I am. But as far as being the, a different man, yes, I'm a different man. So if, if Tiger Clark, the player from those, because I read there was an article written about, it came through the LA Times. It may not have been where it was originally written, but it pretty accurately described you and that team and the persona and the talk and the this. So could Bernard Clark Jr., head coach, linebacker, University of Miami? You know what? It's crazy you say that because everyone always says that the players you coach take on your personality. And it's absolutely true. Over the years, I've coached a lot of linebackers, and I swear at some point in time, they drive me crazy. I'm sure <laughs> the same way I used to drive my coaches crazy because sometimes they listen and sometimes they don't. And sometimes, and the crazy thing is, I used to be able to dance back then. When I was doing all the antics, acting crazy, throwing my hands in the air, it was okay back then. Well, it's not okay now, but every player I have wants to talk trash, wants to get in somebody's face and say, guys, you can't do it anymore. It's like, Coach, you used to do it. I said, yeah, but it was legal back then. It's not legal anymore, guys. You can't do it. We'll get in trouble. So, Max, most of our guys act exactly the way I act when I play college football. Let me ask you this. We all know about what the, what those teams were like, and I know it was more than just that, right? I've done enough of these, talked to enough guys that that's sort of like there was a fuel there, and there, those personas did mean something, but there was also a level of competitiveness and fierceness and all that kind of stuff, right? I mean, that was sort of like the icing, right? But – my question for you is, you said you came from a high school up in the Tampa area that wasn't very good, didn't win a lot of games. <laughs> so why'd you fit in? How'd you fit in? I'll tell you how I fit in. When I was coming out of high school, I visited Georgia Tech. I visited Oklahoma State. I visited the University of Memphis because the coach just kept calling me, so I had to go there. And I visited the University of Miami. I'm a guy who grew up the youngest of four kids. I got three older sisters. As soon as I walked on campus at the University of Miami, you see the cone on the top of my head? That's when they started making jokes about the cone on top of my head, how I look, all the jokes that started coming in. And that's why I fit in because I said, you know what? This is my home away from home. That's what my sister used to do with me, harass me all the time, bully me all the time as a kid. That's exactly what I walked into a brotherhood at the University of Miami. And probably one of the main guys, actually two of the main guys were Selwyn Brown and Daryl Fullerton, two of the guys talking about the cone on my head. So that's why I fit in so well. You say cone on your head. Wasn't there, isn't there like a TV show or something? Dan Aykroyd? Yeah, the cone heads. Yeah, they call me cone head. Yeah, they call me, and they call me cone head. They call me, they call me peak. They call me all kinds of stuff. I remember a guy told me oh. one. Yeah, I mean, one guy, <laughs> when I first got to, uh matter of fact, when I got to the Cincinnati Bengals, the uh, starting uh, nose guards, Tim Cromrod, he was telling me my head looked like a splitter or a log where you just split logs on the top of it. So 
it's been going on for years. But yeah, that's the reason I fit in the University of Miami. Now, I read, but I, I just want you to tell, how did you get the nickname Tiger? I'm going to make sure what I read and what the truth is. We're going to marry those two together. Now, I got a crazy story about this, and it's going to be hilarious to you. I remember when I got the job at the University of Pittsburgh. I was coaching linebackers, Coach Wanstead, and they asked me that question. And the question actually it comes from my mother said when I was about six months old, people would try to pick me up, and I would fight like a little tiger. I said it has nothing to do with any wild escapades or anything like that. But I did it at the time in 2010 when the situation had just happened to Tiger Woods with his wife. And oh. when I said the wild escapades, that ain't how I got the name Tiger. And as I walked off, and I didn't even think about it, my wife was like, you do realize that Tiger Woods just got in trouble for the stuff you just said. I said, baby, I wasn't even thinking about it. It's strictly, <laughs> my mom gave me the nickname when I was a kid. She just said, I fought like a little tiger. All right. Did that Tiger help you out in that Miami locker room? That persona? It helped me out a lot in that Miami locker room. Probably the, the three guys that helped me more than anyone. I always tell people this. My first year, I had roommates. My second year of my roommates was Tracy Waiters, Rod Carter, and Mike Irvin. Those three guys had three different personalities, but their confidence that they had was absolutely unbelievable. They gave me more confidence as my older brothers than anyone else, along with other guys like Melvin Bradley and obviously Jerome Brown, Alonzo Hospital, all those guys. But those three guys, been in the room with them, just gave me a lot of confidence, just the way they played the game and how they went about the game and how they went about getting ready for the game. Those are the things you remember from the University of Miami, like you talk about. Yeah, we were crazy on the field, but a lot of hard work and dedication went into being crazy on the field and putting things together. Would you live with Michael Irvin again? Right now? Absolutely. He's rich. <laughs> <laughs> Matter of fact, I wish I could live with him for free. Me and my wife could just move in with him and his wife, Sandy. That'd be great. No rent, no anything. Absolutely. Oh, he must have been a lot of fun. But you know what? It, it, all three of those guys were, you know, between Mike and, and Rod. And, you know, again, I always tell people, people always say, you know, man, Mike changed. Mike didn't change. When Mike had no money in his pocket, he was still the same brash, arrogant, egotistical, unbelievable football player that there ever was. That's how he's always been. So that's the great thing about it. And Rod was one of those guys. And him and Rod were the best of room. I think they were roommates the entire time they were there. Rod Carter was. Tracy Wade has been Tracy. Tracy grew up in Palmetto, Florida. And I grew up in Tampa, so we would drive home together. So being around those guys really helped me out a lot. All right. So as someone who's coached in college football for a long time, someone who's a head coach now, you've talked about it from back in that time. Most everyone that's been on here has talked about it, but I want you to describe it, the level of competition. Hmm. Well, this is it. And I part of somebody put it in perspective for me more than I put it in perspective for other people. When I was at the University of Miami, I played behind George Meyer. Mike Barrow played behind me. I think Nate Webster played behind him. Ray Lewis played behind him. Later on, it was Dan Morgan, John Beeson. Now, here's the crazy part, and I heard Clinton Porter say this the other day. It was Clinton Porter, Najee Davenport, Edwin James, Frank Gore, and Willis McGahee in the backfield. So that gives you an idea of the competition back then. Someone's asked me the same question, do you think he would have transferred? No, I wouldn't because we relished the competition because it was all about me trying to beat out Rod Carter, trying to beat out Randy Shannon when I was there, trying to beat out George Myra. We relished that competition, but that's the whole thing. Because of the competition on the field, it was always fierce. It was always a lot of jaw talking, a lot of smack talking in practice. It wasn't just, we forget about the games. To us, the games were a day off. I would tell people all the time, on this practice squad, I always tell people on, this, on, the, um, on the scout team, I went against Leon Searcy. He was on our scout team. He was our scout team offensive lineman. So when you talk about competition, you talk about the guys who were on that field at the time in practice and the way they got after each other was unbelievable. People don't believe this. 
this is what's crazy. Cortez Kennedy didn't play until he was a senior because of the guys in front of him. I mean, Jimmy Jones was a part-time player. Greg Mark was a defensive tackle. He moved the defensive end. We can go on and on and on. I always tell people, the line that played in front of me, Cortez Kennedy, Russell Maryland, Greg Mark, Shane Curry, Jimmy Jones, no one went later than the third round. That's the competition that we had at the University of Miami. And that's what made us so good. And I always tell people, one thing I'm proud of when it comes to the University of Miami, Miami has five national championships, but it's with four different coaches. That tells you how much of a player-led team it was. And that's the great thing about the University of Miami. And once they can get back to that, what Mario has, the players understanding that this is your team. It's time for you to take it over. You're the one that's going to push this machine. That's when the University of Miami is going to become good again because the players understand that it's under the tutelage of Mario Cristobal that they're going to be a great football team because they have to learn to coach themselves. So two things inside of that, Tiger, which would be one, competition is almost inherently bred through the talent you have on the team, right? Absolutely. That inherently breeds the competition because you either want to get on the field or are scared to lose your job. Absolutely. And number two is the mentorship, right? Because then you said, as a scout team, I was going up against Leon Searcy, which means that just made you better. No doubt. Made me a whole lot better. And it made Leon better because when he's going against us and he's going against Russell Merrill and he's going against guys like that, he's going to become a better football player or he's going to get trucked. One or the other it has nothing to do with it. When I was on the scout team, I was going against Melvin Bratton, Miles Highsmith, and all those guys. Lacozzi, over and over and over, Ed Davis. You could talk about some of the great names, but the competition was bred at the University of Miami at that time. Now, the great thing about it, probably one of the greatest things that I ever thought about at the University of Miami, before Coach Johnson took over, I think they said the graduation rate was like 20%. By the time he was done, it was at 77%. So on top of being good football players, we we're also graduating guys. It wasn't like everybody thought we were just out there just playing football. No, guys were actually getting their education and doing a great job at it. When you think of great football and baseball, you think about the you. When you get hurt in a car, truck, or motorcycle wreck, you need to think Lebovic Law Group. At Lebovic Law Group, you come first. We work to get you all the money you are entitled to. Injured? You need to call or click Lebovic. Lebovic Law Group, the exclusive sponsor of the Miami Hurricanes and proud sponsor of all things you. Go you! My coworker, my partner on the broadcast, Don Bailey Jr., made a point this year, and, I, and you already touched on it, which was you can have talent, and Miami's trying to get more of it. But he also said just because you have talent doesn't always mean you get better because who's also who's showing – once you acquire it, someone has to show them. And what you talked about is the lineage, right? So, you know, A showed B, B showed – et cetera. So how much did the mentoring – how much did Rod Carter help you? How much did Randy Shannon help you? And not only how much, but how – did they help you, right? Because, yes, you're talented, but someone had to pass it down. And if there's no one to pass it down, how do you learn? Well, Rod probably helped me in so many ways just from the competition standpoint because we were always either Mike linebacker, Sam linebacker going at it. Randy Shannon, I knew back then, was going to be a coach because Randy sat me down and said, this is what you're doing wrong. You need to do this right. So that's how it was. Now, even though we competed for the same job, Randy's the one that sat me down and told me this is how it's done. I knew Randy would be a coach long before Randy jumped into coaching, so that's the great thing about it. Now, before that, you forget it was Winston Moss that also sat me down when I first got there and said, this is how we do things. Jerome Brown, this is how we do things. When you're about to do something wrong, this is how we handle it. It's crazy now that I'm old and I'm the head football coach, the one model that we use is push and pull. Back then, those guys pushed me to be a better player, pushed me to be a better person. And if I was to do something stupid, they would pull me away from that. 
And that's our team's model because that's what you have to do as a coach. That's what you have to do as a player to produce a great team. You got to push them on the field, push them in academics, push them to be better people. And when they're about to do something stupid, you got to pull them away from it. So that's what I did. That's what we did back then was push and pull each other. Speaking of yourself, you mentioned about Cortez and Plato. He was a senior and obviously your story, George Myers suspended, Orange Bowl MVP. How much did you play before that? My first game I started in was against Texas Tech when I was a redshirt freshman. I was redshirt the first year. Texas Tech was the first game I started. But this is the crazy thing what people don't understand. After I won most valuable play, I started the next year. Well, Coach Johnson and Coach Wanstead didn't think I was performing up to par. The last three games, I was benched. And so it was a situation where I had to start all over again. Then my senior year when Coach Erickson came in, that's when I got the starting job back. But that's how it was at Miami. Hey, wait, 87, you win the MVP. 88, you, you start, then get benched. Then 89, you got to earn your job again. Exactly. Because that's how it was. Like you just said, you can't let up. You can't lax off. You can't get injured. You can't get hurt because the guy behind you will take your job. Plain and simple. There's no if, ands, or buts about it. And what happened was my uh, in the 88 year, when I started, I started that year. I mean, we beat the brakes off Florida State. I love that game, 31 nothing. But through the year, Maurice Crum was playing so good at outside linebacker that I wasn't playing on the par, so they bumped Rod Carter inside and moved Maurice on the field, and they ended up benching me. So it's a situation where I laxed up for one second and lost my job. But that's how it was at Miami, and that's how quickly you can lose your job. So that's why Cortez Kennedy didn't start until he was a senior. Now, he played unbelievable, obviously, the Hall of Famer, but he didn't get on the field on a consistent basis until he was a senior. So Maurice Crum took your job in 88? Rod Carter took my job. Maurice Crump bumped Rod inside. So in 88, yeah, Maurice Crump took my job. That's what I tell people. I got so. you. And then the next year, you guys played next to each other, right? We played next to each other. He played next to me. I played next to him and along with Rick Newbill. Yeah, and that's, that's what I'm saying. So that's the situation. Now, I didn't lose my job that year. I got hurt. When I got hurt, matter of fact, I came back and got my job back because Mike Barrow was playing unbelievable. I was like, no, this isn't happening two years in a row. So I ended up getting my job back. So it was a great, great situation. For, but again, Jesse Armstead told the story when he was at Miami. He got hurt, and they, he said they brought in a linebacker. I think the last name was Bass, Patrick Bass. I think Eric Bass. He said watching him on the field fueled him to get back. Robert ba- it's Robert Bass. Robert Bass. Robert Robert Bass. Thank you. Sorry. Yeah, and I'll never forget when I, when I hurt my knee my senior year, I remember going, we went to play Michigan State, and I remember Mike just knocking a guy out in the game. I'm like, oh, no, this, is, this ain't happening two years in a row. So I worked that knee to get back as much as I could because, again, Mike was end up being a great player, but I wasn't going to let him take my job that year. So illuminate us on the, the night, the, the Orange Bowl game. What, you know, you're not starting that year? I'm not a starter. I've started in a few games. Like, I started against East Carolina, I think, because George was injured. And I started again against Maryland because Rod Carter was injured. The great thing about it was when I first got there, Coach Wanstead said, if you want to get on the field, learn all three positions. Learn Mike, Sam, and Will. So whenever somebody got hurt, I was the guy that went on the field. So if the Sam linebacker got hurt, I went on the field. Mike linebacker got hurt, I went on the field. Will linebacker, because I knew all three positions. So I had started a couple of games before that, but I'll never forget that game. And I'm, the reason I'll never forget it, obviously I was at home it was Christmas Eve, and I got a call from Coach Wanstead, and he gives me a call, and he said, hey, something's happened. We need you to be ready to play. I said, what do you mean ready to play? I'm Coach, I'm always ready to play. He said, no, no, we need you to start. And I was like, oh, you mean ready to play? So the great thing about it, when I first got to the University of Miami, there's a sign that was on the wall. It went from the training room to the locker room. It said preparation plus opportunity equals success. I took that to heart. I read that thing every single day. So when Coach Wanstead called me about that game, I was already prepared, and I was ready for that opportunity. 
the crazy thing about it, when I was getting ready to go onto the field, I don't know how my dad made his way down to the field, but my dad waved his way down to the field. And I remember my dad saying to me, he pulled me over. He said, come here. He said, you're talking in the paper like you have something to prove. You don't have anything to prove to anyone. Your coaches believe in you. Your teammates believe in you. Now just go out there and do what God allows you to do. And so I ended up having a really good game. And my dad kind of took some of the pressure away when he came down to talk to me on the field. But Gabe, when I got that call from Coach Wants that I had already been prepared for that opportunity, and I think that's why I was successful. That game was a big deal. I mean, because Jimmy had been working and your team had been working for that opportunity. I mean, just the year before, we know what happened, Penn State. Absolutely. You know, how much pressure was there? I forget the pressure on whatever pressure you felt for yourself. How much pressure was on that team that game? How much pressure was on that team that entire offseason? A ton of pressure. I mean, it was crazy how, you know, the 86 game. And I go back and watch that game, Josh, and I still can't believe we lost the game. I don't it's know like how you guys. We gave him a, I don't know. Inexplainable. <laughs> yeah, it's crazy. So when we come back that year, the first thing is, is we're going to do everything right. That's what Coach Johnson told us. We're going to do everything right at the bowl game. We're going to dress the way we're supposed to dress. We're going to go to go to this. We're going to go to this lunch, and we're going to do everything we're supposed to do. So no one has any excuses to talk about what we're not doing. But more importantly, Coach Johnson knew we are going to do everything right on the field. When they put me on the field, like I said, I had already been preparing for that moment when I first got to the University of Miami. And the fact that they believed in a redshirt sophomore to step on the field and play that game, a national championship game, gave me the confidence that I needed. And on top of that, I'll tell you a crazy story. I'm not sure if he remembers this or not. Of course, at the time, my roommate was Mike Irving. And I remember me and Mike talking and going back and forth. And Mike said, you know, I'm going to win MVP. I was like, nah, you know what, Mike? The stage is already kind of set for me. Because if you remember the year before that, when Oklahoma played in the Orange Bowl, Bosworth had to sit out. And the guy that replaced Bosworth won the most valuable player. So the same scenario happened this year with me. So my mind thinking, if I have a pretty good game, I might be able to win the most valuable player in this game. And so – at the end of the game, when I finally won most valuable player, I remember I walked into the locker room and Mike looked at me. He said, <laughs> he said, you said you were going to do it. And I say, yeah, I did. It was kind of set for me. And then somebody asked me, he said, did you guys talk about this? I was like, nah, we never talked about it. But we did talk about it because, again, Mike was that guy that gave me some of that confidence that I needed to go out there and play the way I played along with the guy that played next to me, Rod Carter and Randy Shannon. Those guys that played next to me gave me that confidence and the guys in front of me. So. One thing I know about Michael, having gotten to know him over the years, is yes, there was the confidence and brashness, but the work ethic, because that always gets overlooked by the personality. Absolutely. And what people don't understand, just to give you an idea, Mike Irvin's the kind of person, he's sitting in the room and you're talking about something. He'll put on a 25-pound weight jacket 10 o'clock at night and go out and jog four miles because that's how much he was obsessed with making it to the NFL and being the best. He wasn't the fastest receiver. He probably wasn't the strongest receiver, the biggest receiver. But I don't think anybody outworked him. He was the kind of guy, if we had to run 16 110s, we had to make it in, say, 17 seconds, Mike's going to run 21 10s and make them in 15 seconds. Just because of his mindset, that's how much he needed to work. He felt like he had to work that much harder than everyone else. And he's one of the hardest workers I've ever been around. The 87 roster, when I was just going through it again prior to this, it's almost like talking about Michael Irvin, right? We all recognize the names. The fans recognize the names. The thing that stood out to me, Tiger, because everyone gets stuck on talent, and I get it. Obviously, talent wins. It was You had a ton of fourth- and fifth-year guys, a ton of guys who had grown up together under Jimmy, Absolutely. gone through some not a lot of adversity, but enough adversity, right? You guys were all, I would imagine, that you explained it, there, there was a bond. Absolutely. That, that, yes, there were the names we know, 
But also the thing about the names we know is that you guys have been together a long or a, a large group of that team had been together a long time. How much did that matter? Well, it means a lot. When you have that kind of experience on the field, again, like I said, the guys that were playing next to me with Rod Carter and Randy Shannon, they had been there a long time. The guys in front of me, Bill Hawkins and Daniel Stubbs, Derwin Jones. Behind me, you got Benny Blaze, you got Tobit Bain. Those are the guys that were around us at the time. You're talking about guys, like you said, have been there four or five years. Experience means a lot. You and I were talking about my season earlier at Robert Morris University. I'll tell you how we finished the season. It gives you an idea why we struggled the way we did. Three redshirt freshmen, one true freshman, one redshirt sophomore. That's our starting offensive line in the last four games of the year. So it gives you an idea of how you can stumble when you have younger guys. Not that they're not good, but when you have guys like Melvin Brack, you know, you got Steve Walsh. You got Charles Henry at tight end. When you have guys like that playing with that much experience over the years and playing together and all playing for a goal of a common cause because we had just lost the Fiesta Bowl the year before that, trying to put Jimmy Johnson on top, trying to put Coach Johnson on top. All of us came together and we believed in one another, and that's why we worked the way it worked. Jimmy say anything to you after the game? He did not. Coach Johnson said he said something to me in the press conference. He was just congratulations, gave me a hug, stuff like that. He's like, I know you can do it, but other than that, I mean, it goes back to what he believes in. Though, when they, Once they put you on the field, they expect you to get it done. It wasn't a situation where they were just putting you out there because they're, they're hoping. No, they've watched you. They've watched film. They've seen you do things, and they know that what they want you to do is prepare for the opportunity so you can be successful. All right, 88, you mentioned Florida State, but there's another game that year, right? So on a scale of 1 to 10, uh, uh, on a scale of 1 to 10, you dislike Notre Dame how much? Uh. Well, <laughs> I'm not a big Notre Dame fan, but since I'm a college coach, I'm going to kind of keep it to myself. Yeah. I'm, not a, I'm not a huge Notre Dame fan. Probably the craziest thing that ever happened when I was at the University of Pittsburgh and we played against Notre Dame. And as I'm walking on the field, every all the grounds people and everybody around the stadium, they, as you walk on the field, they say, welcome to Notre Dame. Welcome to Notre Dame. And I'm thinking in the back of my mind, really? Is this the Bahamas? I mean, are you guys happy? There? I mean, this isn't like the Bahamas. This is like it's a great place to come. But, I mean, people love Notre Dame football. They absolutely do. I mean, the school's, are, what, a 1,000 years old. I mean, so they love Notre Dame football. Yeah, but loved Notre Dame football and hated you guys. Oh, they absolutely hated us. I tell everybody, though, the only thing that bothered me was that they didn't put convicts versus Catholics. I wanted that us first and them second because we beat them. Did you guys care? I feel like you guys probably embraced it. I don't. I didn't care. Again, because it goes back to – the fact that we're graduating 77 to 80% of our guys every year. So the convicts thing, it didn't bother me personally. It bothered some guys, but it didn't bother me. Like I said, the only thing that bothered me is they put a second. Should have put convicts versus Catholics because we're the winners. Did you uh were you involved in the pregame tussle? Uh just a little bit. <laughs> you say <laughs> you a, say a few things? Just a, I said a couple of things. A couple of words might have come out of your mouth, just, Tiger. Just a, just a little bit. Just a little bit. Nothing too strenuous. Nothing too uh absurd should i say maybe grab the face mask or two but you know maybe nothing too crazy nothing too maybe crazy. <laughs> can you watch that game what hurts you more 86 penn state or 88 notre dame 86 penn state because i truly believe that that's the best team that ever been at the university of miami that did not win a national championship when you think about the fact that we had three first round picks on that team you know and i think they went in the top 10 picks you had benny testaverde you had alonzo Smith, you had jerome brown i think they won the top 10 picks and the fact we did win that game but those guys kind of bothered me more than anything else. The 86 probably hurt me more than anything else. Did you play in that game? Just special teams. I had made up in my mind in 85 I was redshirt. In 86 I said to myself, 
I'm going to be one of these guys on the bus. That was my goal, to make sure I got on the bus, whether it was playing special teams or I was on the bus. I played kickoff. I played kickoff return. I played punt. And I made sure I was on the bus and made sure I was a part of that because I wanted to be a part of that atmosphere. I didn't come there just to sit on the bench. I came there to play on the field any way I could. I think that's the biggest issue nowadays with a lot of young men when they go to college. They're so caught up in uh, – everybody's caught up in them starting, them being the best they can be. And they never really grow. You know, I just sat here and told you, yeah, Clinton Fortis, Najee Davenport, Willis McGahee, Edwin James, and Frank Gore in the same backfield. And these guys bust their behind, waited their turn, and all of them had successful NFL careers. So it's a situation where it can happen. Just think about this. Mike Irvin, Brian Blades, Brent Perriman, all played at Andre Brown, all played wide receiver at University of Miami. When they had two receivers on the field at the time. Hand in the dirt. They had three-point stands. <laughs> exactly. And I think Mike went first round, Brett went second round, I think uh, Brian went second round. So it's a matter of getting what you need to get done to be the player you need to be as opposed to trying to look for a soft landing. Where can I go where I'm going to play and I'm not going to have to compete a whole lot? Where can I go and have a soft landing? And I think that's the biggest problem right now with college football. Random question. At your level, do you see that as well? Oh, yeah, absolutely. There's no doubt about it. I think you see it at every level. I talked to my buddies who are at D3 schools and at D2 schools, the exact same thing. Because a lot of it, a lot of these guys, they don't realize they're the best player at their high school at that time. So when they get here, they're joining the best players from their high school at that time. And they don't want to compete because they didn't have to compete in high school. Make this the day your life changes. The all-new UFIT Gyms has been created to give you exactly what you need to accelerate your fitness results, including state-of-the-art equipment and a new cross-functional turf training area. Enjoy personal training as low as $35 and new small group training classes, including HIT Plus. Take it to the next level with personalized nutrition from Eat Love, along with anywhere, anytime access to UFIT on demand with over 1,000 workouts. Reach your goals faster at the new UFIT Gyms. A lot of nicknames have come through the University of Miami. I don't know if this was official or not, so you can set the record straight. Who Were there some guys that went by some graveyard? The graveyard? Who was the graveyard? No, we were called – we called it the graveyard. And what it was uh, was – and it was in the end zone. So if you come through there, we were going to bury you. So it, it was one <laughs> of the situations. We, call, we called it the graveyard. It was kind of the, between the linebackers and the D-line. That's what we call the graveyard because if you come through here, we're going to bury you. Now, the greatest one, though, I'll be honest with you, I was with the conscience. You know who the conscience was, right? Who? The conscience. That was Russell Maryland. Russell Maryland was the conscience of everybody. If you were doing something wrong, Russell was like, hey, man, you know you're not doing the right thing there. Russell, we call Russell the conscience. And we called uh, uh, Charles Farms. What Charles, we didn't give him a nickname, but what Charles used to do, and I didn't realize he was doing it, Charles used to wear black to every game. He'd have black shirt on, black pants, all black. I said, man, why are you wearing all black? He said, because I'm mourning for the other team because we're about to kill them. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man, you guys were great. Hey, last thing before we get on to some other stuff. So we've mentioned a lot of names here, Tiger, but anyone we haven't, like never maybe got there just due, but there were key components of those teams? Hmm. Never got that just due key component. Probably the the two that I think about is Donnie Ellis and Tobit Banks. You know, Tobin Bain was a four-year starter. We thought he'd have a, you know, a long career in the NFL. I thought he'd, you know, be unbelievable player. Rock Carter, I don't think he got his just due the way he should have. And I'll be totally honest with you, Josh, if Melvin Bratton doesn't get hurt, yeah. I'm not the most valuable player. And I've watched that game several times. Melvin played absolutely unbelievable in that game. And so those are probably the guys I'd say that kind of jump out that didn't get their just due. And you forget about uh, 
I can't think of Bruce's last name. He's the offensive guard that started in place of uh, Apache. And uh, he was on the field. No one ever talks about him. And he was an unbelievable piece that, you know, helped us out, helped us win that game. The offensive line was good, obviously. But you talk about guys that were unsung heroes. I'd say Tobert Bain and uh, Donnie Ellis were probably two biggest to jump out to me. And obviously, in the secondary at that time, you had Selwyn Brown, Tobert Bain, Daryl Fullerton, Benny Blades. I mean, you can go on and on and on the guys, but those guys really jump out at me, Tobert Bain and Donnie Ellis. So you mentioned Mario's name earlier. You guys crossed over, what, for a year, two years? Uh, I want to say a year. I think Mario got there in 80, 89. I think he got there in 89 or 88. I can't remember. I think Lewis got there. Me and Lewis. Were Lewis got two. there before. I think Mario yeah. might have got there in 88, redshirted in 89, and then yeah. you were gone and he continued. Yeah. So do you have a, Do you remember Mario as a player? Oh, yeah. I remember his brother more. Lewis, Lewis was a nut. He was absolutely out of his mind. He was crazy. <laughs> I, I, I will never forget. You asked me about is there a game I played before the national championship game. I remember playing East Carolina, and used to get pumped up before a game. You go headbutt a guy and stuff like that. I made the mistake of going and headbutting to get excited with Lewis Cristobal. Lou doesn't know how to stop. That's the thing. You start headbutting Lou, he just wants to keep going for like the next five minutes. And at some point, I'm trying to stop the headbutt, and I turn my head to the side. Lou just keeps banging me <laughs> in the side of my head. So I finally turn around, I bang it back, and then I kind of push him away. It's like. Lou was always excited. He was that guy that got pumped up before a game, got real excited. No, everybody stayed away from him because he was real pumped up about the game. Real pumped up. That's that's a good way of saying he's a little crazy. <laughs> I'm trying to be as nice as I can. Oh, yeah, you're a coach. You're, you're good with the PC stuff now, Tiger. You're, there you go. Yeah. There you go. So, Especially when you're recording. If you weren't recording, we could probably be all right. Yeah, but then it wouldn't be good. <laughs> if I can't record it, what good is it? If I couldn't record it, what good would it be? Now, you also coach with Mario, yes? Yes, at, at FIU, we were together at FIU for a little while, and then I went on to become the defensive coordinator at Hampton University. So I left there to become a coordinator. How did he How did he lure you in? Uh, kind of like, hey, let's do what we did in Miami. Let's try to see if we can build what we built in Miami. And it was a situation where, you know, I went there. He believed in what I believed in. And probably the craziest part, probably the biggest reason I went back, I was at FIU for two years before Mario got there. Then I left and I went to USF for a year. And then Mario got a job. He asked me to come back. When I left in uh, 2005, in 2006, FIU went 0-12. And when I left, I was kind of like, it was bittersweet for me because I was going back home to Tampa to be closer to my family. My wife and I want to be closer to our family. But at the time, I didn't really want to leave FIU because I was a defensive coordinator. But I went anyway. And so when Mario asked me to come back, it was kind of like, I can come back and help these guys build this, but also be around those guys I just worked with. But I went back and I was a defensive line coach. And then a couple of years later, I took another coordinator's job at Hampton University. How bad was it when you got back? Because Mario talks about it like uh, I don't know, no weight room maybe or no locker room. I mean, he said it was like it was just self-made. It was, but at the same time, I'm under the impression you don't worry about what you don't have. You worry about what you do have. And I think what Mario did, he came in there and he laid a foundation and those guys built for that foundation. I'll never forget we were sitting in a, a staff meeting one day and I think we were like 0-10 at the time. And we were trying to figure out, man, how do we turn these guys around? How do we make these guys work? And I looked at everybody. I said, guys, you do realize these guys are 0-22. We're 0-10, but they're 0-22. And they're coming to practice every day, busting their behinds. He had them believing we're going to win the next one. We're going to win the next one. We're going to win the next one. And that's what he did a real good job of. And then the last game, we finally won the last game. And we pulled it off. And so that's what he instilled in those guys. And that was the great thing about coming back. Even though we only won one game that year, the way he instilled in those guys, we're going to win the next one. We're going to win the next one. 
that was exciting to see. What did what did you see in a young head coach in Mario Cristobal? Uh, somebody very organized, somebody very gritty who wanted to go at it. And, you know, he, he just like he played, he was tough. He was hard-nosed. He wanted to make sure he was very disciplined. But, see, people get discipline mixed up sometimes. Discipline isn't about when a guy didn't go to class or didn't do what he was supposed to do and Mario made him run. But the discipline he wanted to teach is, no, go to class. Have the discipline to go to class. Don't worry about what I'm going to do with you. Let's have a discipline to go to class. Let's have a discipline to show up to practice all the time. Let's have a discipline to show up to the meal on time. Those are the things he was trying to instill in these guys, and that's what he did a great job of that year. So how would you get in the coaching? It's strictly a God situation, Josh. I'm being totally honest with you. The last thing I ever thought about being as a coach, you know, years ago when I when I got cut by the Cowboys, I always tell people I played two years in the NFL. The reason I played two and I didn't play ten because I was never a student of the game. When I say that, I don't mean I didn't know what to do. I mean, I didn't know tendencies. I didn't know what's, what was going on. When you were walking in the NFL locker room from the neck down, you deserve to be in there. You're talented. Everybody's talented that's in there. I was 6'2 at the time. I'm 6'2. I was 240. I ran a 4'7. So I had the speed. I could hit. I had been doing that all my life. But when you're at the NFL, it's from the neck up. What do you know? What are the tendencies of the offense when they're in a double formation, when they're in a trips formation? What are they running out of? It's a high backfield. It's a one man in the backfield. Those are things I learned once I became a coach. But at the time, I wasn't a student of the game, and I refused to become a student of the game. Hanging out, having a good time, and just making tackles on Sunday is what I wanted to do when it's more than that. But I didn't take the time to learn more than that. So when I finished up playing, I didn't know what I wanted to do in my life. I lost a lot of money, you know, trying to do businesses, a detail shop, trying to do a trucking company, trying to be a manager of a singing group. I, I spent a lot of money doing a lot of dumb things. And then I finally asked God, just, you know, what do you want me to do? In May of 96, I gave my life to Christ. I was like, what do you want me to do? And he guided me back to football. But I didn't get into it before the X's and the O's. I'm sure you've heard of this before. It's not about the X's and the O's. It's about the Jimmy's and the Joe's. And what I wanted to do was create an environment on and off the field to continue what families have done and help guys become better men, better husbands, and better fathers. And that's what I've done, and that's why I've got into coaching because I love the fact that when the young men look at me, I feel like I have something to say to them, and that's what's exciting to me. So helping a young man through football, because football has molded my life the same way it's molded a lot of young men's lives, but through football and showing them discipline, being relentless, showing them respect and trust, all those things are the things you need in the real world as a man, as a husband, as a father, and working through football is how I do it. So that's why I got into football, and I fell in love with helping young men grow and finding their purpose because this is my purpose because Mark Twain has an old saying. He has a quote. Mark Twain says, the two most important days in your life is the day that you're born and the day you find out why. This is why I was born. I was born to coach. Did you love it at first? Did you like first time you hit a sideline, first time you hit a huddle? Did you love it? Absolutely. I was at Santa Fe Catholic High School in Lakeland, Florida. And the first time I walked in the locker room and I got pumped and I was going off with the players and they were looking at me, I was like, yeah, this is what I'm supposed to be doing. I got on the sideline and I called a blitz and it worked. I was like, okay, I like this. So I, I fell in love with that. But I did know I did not want to coach in high school. <laughs> I know I didn't want to deal with parents. So that's why I got into coaching, college coach, because I didn't want to deal with parents. And I don't want to go to the next level because, again, like I said, I'm trying to help guys become better men, better husbands, better fathers. I think it's the right age to do it right here in college. When you say next level, you're talking about the NFL? Yes, I got you. I have no desire to coach an NFL, and not that it, not that it wouldn't be great, but I just have no desire because I think I'm I'm reaching guys right at the right age of where they need guidance and need to understand it. Because the unfortunate part is a lot of these guys think they're going to the NFL, and I tell them all the time, I'm never going to discourage you and say you can't make it. But there's only 1,700 jobs in the NFL. 1,700. That's it. 
There are 42,000 brain surgeons in America. You got a better chance of being a brain surgeon than make it to the NFL. So I want them to understand and find their purpose while they're here. If they make it to the NFL, great. But it ain't just about making it, it's about sustaining. I made it, but I didn't sustain a career. So I got to make those guys understand it's not just about that. So it's about growing and becoming a better man, husband, and father. Do you enjoy coaching at the FCS level? I enjoy coaching, period, to be totally honest with you. Even if it was at D2, I just enjoy watching a young man grow and watching a team grow and prosper. You know, even though we had a bad year this year, when I first got here in 2018, and we had, I think we went two and nine, that next year to watch that team go seven and five and play for the conference championship was amazing. You know, we watched that team grow from where they were and we built the winner. They hadn't had a winning season here since 2010. And then we got the winning season 2019. The guys loved it. Everything got together. The tough thing now is we've changed conferences. And so everything's kind of out of wax. We're trying to pull everything back together right now. So you said you were not a student of the game as a player. When did you become one as a coach? Because you got to be if you're going to instruct your guys. As soon as I became a coach, the guy that gave me my break is Alex Wood. He was the running backs coach at the University of Miami in 1989 when I was there. When He came in with Coach Dennis Erickson. He was the head coach at James Madison University. And Alex Wood gave me my break. I called him. I said, Coach, I want to get into coaching. He said, if you're serious about it, meet me in Dallas at the coaches' convention. I flew out to Dallas at the coaches' convention. I walked in. I said, Coach, how you doing? He said, I'll see you in Virginia. And I went to Harrisonburg, Virginia, $15,000 a year. I had the most fun. I was most happy than I'd ever been before. But I'll tell you this. When I first got there, what I did was I locked myself in my room, in my office. And when they gave me the playbook, I drew up every formation that the offense could show you against every defense that we had. And that's how I learned the game of football. Now, over the years, I've learned about cover three, cover four, and where everybody is, not just where the linebackers are, and how three-by-one, two-by-two sets and unbalanced sets and teams are going to give you tendencies out of all that stuff. I became a student of a game once I became a coach. And I sat down with so many coaches at the time. Our defense coordinator was a phenomenal coach. His name was Bob Fellow. He taught me how to study film and things like that. So I learned how to do those things. And I don't want anybody to think that Coach Johnson and Coach Wanstead, they taught me how to do those things. I just didn't take the initiative to learn those things more than anything else. They studied, they watched just as much film as anybody else. But all I watched was what I was supposed to do as opposed to what was happening on the field. As a coach now, if you can kind of turn time back, what do you look back at Jimmy and Marvel at? As a, co- a guy who's now leading rooms, leading men, leading teams, and be like, yeah, he was, that's, he was good. Exactly what me and you said earlier. Sitting in the big chair and being able to manage all those personalities. We're not just talking about the personalities on the field. We're talking about coaches also. Being able to manage all the personalities and put people in the right positions in the right place, giving people enough leeway to handle things the way they want to handle them. I try to do some of the stuff like him, but I'm in a different generation, so I can't do some of the things that I do. Like Coach Wanstead pretty much ran the defense. Coach Stevens ran the offense. I got to peek my head in there every now and then to make sure things are being run the way I want them to run. Totally different than what Coach Johnson did. He did a great job of dictating exactly what happened at all times on that field. And I think somebody said it best. I think it was Mario. He said it. There were things that were coached to do, and there were things that were allowed to do. And trust me, Coach Johnson knew what to allow and what to coach. And as a coach, I try to do that too, what to allow and what to coach. What about what you don't allow? Uh, I can't stand cell phones. They absolutely drive me out of my mind. If I walk into a meeting room and a player has a cell phone out, it's 300 yards up now. If the phone rings, I take it for 48 hours. I can't stand cell phones. I don't even take my cell phone in the meeting room. It's an electronic leash. So 
so my wife can track me down. That's what I think of them. So I don't like cell phones. You might have answered this question before about management of people, but I'm going to throw it out there anyways. You've taken a lot of pride in wherever I'm at, I'm going to learn and I'm going to grow. So what have you learned about what is most important being the head coach versus a position coach or coordinator? Uh, being a head coach, you have to hold everyone accountable for the job that they're here for. I'm talking about coaches, trainers, equipment managers, players. You have to hold everybody accountable because you are <laughs> responsible for them. You know, when things aren't going well, they don't look at anybody but the head coach. So everybody else must be held accountable. You know, when we were 0 and 5, you know, no one was looking at the equipment manager. No one was looking at the offensive coordinator, defense coordinator. They were looking at me and trying to see, why can't you figure it out? And I was doing the same thing to myself. I was asking, okay, God, what are you trying to teach me? And how come I can't figure this thing out? But at one point, I lost the ability to hold those guys accountable the way I should have. And I thought it would always come back together because I was always trying to pull it back together. But for some reason, they didn't do that this year. So I know for a fact the most important thing for me is to hold everyone accountable for the job that they're set out to do. Do you spend more of your time on offense or defense, just out of curiosity? Defense. I'm a, I'm a defensive guy, so more on defense. Now, the great thing about it, I don't bug the defensive coach. I don't drive him crazy. I probably drive the offensive coach more crazy because I don't understand it as much as I understand defense. So as a defensive-minded guy, what kind of offense do you run? What kind of offense do we run? Well, this is the offense that we're going to run this year. And the reason I say that is because when I told you we changed conferences, we still don't have as many scholarships as the other guys in the conference. So we need to do something that makes a team prepare for us and have a trouble preparing for us in three days. Not going to run the option, but we're going to run a form of zone sweep, but it's going to be with motions and adjustments and, and shifts and things like that. we got to do something different to make the defense have to prepare hard for us, but only have three days to prepare for us. When I was a defense coordinator at U Albany in upstate New York, we used to play New Hampshire. New Hampshire had 15 unusual formations. They would put an offensive tackle out in the flat, they put the center on the other side. They have the tight end hiking the ball. And they had 15 of those things. They may not run one of them. But when we played them, we had to prepare for all 15. That's the kind of offense that we're going to have to run to make people prepare for what we're doing. Now, if you could run it, if, if you were mano a mano, scholarship for scholarship, what, what would you do in this day and age of football? What is hard to prepare for other than you just, when they throw roll out all different kinds of stuff, what makes it hard on a defensive guy to prepare in this day and age? I'll be totally honest with you. If I was an offensive coordinator and we had scholarships, scholarship, one thing I'd want to run is because, and this is coming from a linebacker, I don't think linebackers are as tough as they used to be when it comes to taking on blocks. I would probably more run more ISO inside where I'd put a fullback in the backfield and go and hit a linebacker in his mouth every single time, blocking guys off the ball because linebackers are faster. They are stronger. But when it comes to downhill tackles, they're not as tough as they used to be because they don't have to be because everything's outside. They have to run everything down as opposed to taking everything on front side. So I'd probably run more ISO and more power inside runs if we had mono e mono of what we could do. See, I'm going to see what you're going to unleash next year. Sounds good. I'm going to see this, <laughs> the zone sweep you got. I don't do the zone sweep offense. All kind of crazy stuff. Yeah. Uh, so since you're a head coach, I like picking people's brains on these next couple of questions. I don't care what level it is. A lot of people say, hey, I want guys that love football. Right? I want guys on my team that love football, whatever. How do you gauge that when you're recruiting? When you bring a guy on a recruiting visit, the one thing, you sit him down and he sits and talks to the position coach, and the position coach starts asking him football questions, what's his knowledge of that? Is he engaged? Is he watching the film? When you turn the film on, is he watching the film? Or does he have his cell phone now? 
those are the things that you know for guys like, oh, coach, that's cover two. Or you put them on the board and say, hey, like we put, prime example, we brought a guy, a young man in from a school, and we put him on the board. We say, draw up what you used to draw. Guy drew up cover four, cover two, four-man front, four-two front, and he drew it all up. This guy loves football. This guy's in, it's important to him. When it's important to a young man to learn and be engaged, that's how you know he loves football. If he's on his cell phone, if he's not paying attention, in my opinion, he doesn't really love the game of football. Could you deal with the portal? We transfer we, portal. We do, we do. But I'll be honest with you. I always tell our guys, I don't want to look at anybody from FBS, and not because they're not good, but because we're a smaller school. We bust everywhere we go. We're not riding in planes. We're not riding in charters. So we bring a guy from the penthouse <laughs> down here to government housing. It's kind of tough to get him to do what we're doing. So the guys we look at. Do you get at, least, at least get a say in the bus company? Yes, absolutely. We get a say in the bus company. And we get three buses as opposed to two buses. But, yeah, we get, <laughs> we get a say in it. But we do. But we try to look at guys from other FCS schools, Division two or Division three. Every now and then we look at a guy at a bigger school, but it's tough to get him here because he's leaving so much to come to so little, and it's a tough situation for us. They're there. They got to love love football. Purity of just they got to love football. There's no doubt about it. They got to want to be here and want to be a part of it. And we haven't gotten a whole lot of guys. We got one guy. He was a receiver from Rutgers. He lasted that spring football season, and he went in the portal afterwards because he just <laughs> he, he didn't want to be on the buses. He didn't want to be doing everything and. You know, we had like a 12-hour bus ride to South Carolina, and he just didn't like it. So, again, it's a tough situation. So, a lot of guys that are here, we know how much they love football because of the situations we go through. I got gotcha. you. You mentioned earlier your purpose. So, what is your purpose? My purpose is to create an environment to produce better men, husbands, and fathers. I mean, it means so much to me. I wrote a book about it. Where did that purpose originate? Um, actually, when I was at Liberty University, I was coaching at Liberty University. The coach there, he said, we need to groom our guys to be better academically, socially, and spiritually. And what that made me think of was, we're talking about men, husbands, and fathers. And that's where that originated from. Now, some people say it, <laughs> and probably less people do it. Yeah. So how important is it to you to follow through on it? It's extremely important. I mean, it's like, it's what our culture is built on. When I talk about push and pull, that's the first thing I talk about as our team. Because once we stray away from that, again, like I said, we didn't have a great season. So it's a situation was, how do you keep coming back to that? And I kept telling our guys, God's teaching me something. I have no idea what it is, guys, but I'm not going to yell at you. I'm going to cuss you out. We're going to figure this thing out. We're going to continue to work. And because of me showing that may have helped those guys understand, you know, coach is sincere about what he said. I want to be sincere about what I say. I'm not going to steer from it. I'm not going to walk away from being a better man, husbands and fathers, no matter what the record is. At the end of the year, this is what I do. This is not who I am. And my purpose is to create an environment for better men, husbands, and fathers. So what the payoff is what? Is the payoff the invite to the wedding? Is the payoff? Uh... That's exactly what it is, the invite to the wedding. As a matter of fact, it's crazy you say that. One of my coaches right now, I coached him at Hampton University. He got married two years ago. Not only was he a coach for me, he also invited me to his wedding. And, you know, that's, that's the amazing thing. Or when one of my players from Liberty University calls me and says, hey, coach, I want you to be the godfather for my daughter. Those are the payoffs. Or when a young man calls you and say, Coach, you changed my life. What you said to me was unbelievable. Brings me to tears. My wife always calls me a punk. Every time I start crying on the phone, one of those guys called. But those are the things you look for. Sometimes I don't see the fruits of my labor until five, ten years down the road. But it's a continuous cycle. Once you're coaching, right, you have a continuous cycle of stories to be told. Absolutely. And you keep in touch with 
I still keep in touch with some of the guys from James Madison. As a matter of fact, it's crazy. One of my former players from James Madison, his son just won his second state championship in the uh, state of Maryland. And he was a, he was a quarterback. Unfortunately, we're not looking at any high school guys right now, so it's kind of hurting us a little bit. So he's an unbelievable player. But him and I stayed in touch about his son, another young man. Also, his son went to – started in Michigan State, and then he transferred to James Madison. I've also talked to him. So there's a lot of situations where you keep in touch with guys. It's scary now that you're actually recruiting sons of players you coach. You know you're getting old. That's all that means. So that's the crazy part about it. What got you to put pen to – or I don't – yeah, pen to paper – was it hard? Was it harder or easier than you thought? It was absolutely almost impossible. It's so funny you say that because the book has nothing to do with football. The book is strictly about when I gave my life to Christ, I also started practicing abstinence. And my wife and I uh, abstained from sex for a whole year until we got married. And the book, what it came about was there's so many teenage pregnancies and everybody's always talking about the woman this, the woman that. Well, what about the guy? Why isn't anybody holding the man accountable? Why isn't a man never held accountable? Why isn't a man ever taught his body is precious? His body is a temple of God. He should teach it as such. But that's what the book's about. The book's about self-love for a man, not to just use your so-called manhood as a tool, but make sure you understand it as sacred. It is a precious gift from God and teach it as such. So that's what made me want to write the book. The crazy part is how hard was it? It's 55 pages. And I started it in 2000, and I finished it in 2022. So that gives you an what? idea. That gives you an idea how hard it was for me to even put pen to paper. It's like a half a page a day, Tiger. It's like a half a page a day. And I, you know, it's so funny, Josh. I didn't even realize it until one of my players. I was telling, him, "Hey, man, you want to take a read of the book?" He said, "Coach, when did you start it?" He's like, "Coach, 55 pages? You started in 2020?" And I never even thought about it. But it's one of those situations. Once I finalized it, you know, I looked for an editor, couldn't find an editor, found a great guy uh, named Eli Gonzalez. He did a great job of helping me with it and finishing everything up and putting it into book format. But it was probably one of the hardest things I've ever done. People are like, you're going to write another? I was like, I know how I wrote the first one. Talk about writing another one. I don't really know how I did the first one. Again, it's another situation where God just asked me to put it out there, and it's been pretty good for me. So that book is more about, well, men being more aware, I would assume, or maybe aware of themselves. Absolutely. Self-awareness relative to their being, I would imagine, in, in some Absolutely. way, shape, or form. So if more people thought or used the lessons in the book, how do you think that would change our society? I think it would change how young men look at themselves. If a young man understands that to never put himself in compromising positions, I think the world would be a much more comfortable place as opposed to people constantly bickering. And I think it would be a better place. And that's just my personal opinion. All right. Bernard Tiger Clark Jr., head coach, Robert Morris University, not D2, FCS. <laughs> Working on getting our scholarships up. There we go. Zone sweep. I'll be watching for it. Thank you. Appreciate you doing this. Different formations, everything else. We forgot to talk about the one thing we were supposed to talk about. What we miss? The Hall of Fame. Oh, my goodness gracious. <laughs> we scooped. All right. So, Orange Bowl Hall of Fame. How much does it mean? You, you, you're, you know, countless of names have come and played on that stage. The game still means something. It's a power six, you know, bowl game, uh, which is in, as, as football has transformed itself. It's, the Orange Bowl is still in the good graces of our sport. So to be inducted, to be named, to be a part of that, 
How awesome is that for you? It's the most humbling thing that's ever happened to me, Josh, to be totally honest with you. And to get the call well, this well, year. I'm glad you asked me to ask you about it. <laughs> I'm sorry. I apologize. Oh, no. I'm going to have to no, go, you're fine. Have to, go you're to fine. penance. <laughs> it's the most humbling thing that's ever happened to me. In the, in the bad year that we had when I got that call and they said, we want to induct you into the Hall of Fame. You know, I came home and told my wife, you know, I was in tears about it because it's probably the most humbling thing that ever happened to me. This is just the, the gift that keeps on giving. I keep telling her about it. I won the most valuable player back in 88. It was a great time in national championship. And now, I don't know how many years later, you know, they want to induct me into the Hall of Fame. You're talking about something that's totally special, just unbelievable. Something I never thought would ever happen to me. You coming down? Oh, absolutely. I'll be there on the 28th. We're doing all the festivities. My wife and I will be down at all festivities. As a matter of fact, my mother wants to come, and my mother's 80 years old, and she's like, I'm going to Mom, you don't have to come. You're, you're 80. It's okay. She's like, okay, whatever. I'll be there. I'll see you. So Book me a room. Exactly. My mom will be there. It's going to be great. I mean, and the fact that I'm going there with Dewey Selman, you know, it's just unbelievable because I was a huge Bucks fan when I was a kid. You know, now I tell people, I'm the two teams I root for now and one that paid my bills, Robert Morris and the University of Miami. Those are the only two I root for. But, I mean, to be inducted into the freaking Orange Bowl Hall of Fame is just absolutely incredible. All right. Well, Tiger, thank you. I wanted to have you on for more than just that. That's probably why. But it's like, <laughs> well, honestly, once I got into – I connected a lot of dots from 88 – so it's kind of like absolutely. writing the book, right? I connected – what's that, 80, 98, 2000? That's all 35 years. That's a lot I of years. I had to fill in a lot of gaps. I found a lot of interesting stuff to talk about. Not that – that honor is not interesting. It's prestigious, but I found I, there were a lot of other things I want to ask about it, I, as I, I appreciate the it. So not a problem, Josh. I really appreciate you. Thank you for the time, my man. Congratulations, and let's get one. Let's get at least one next year. Oh, ain't no doubt about it. We're gonna have to get at least one. I'm gonna be. I may be doing the show with you if we don't go. <laughs> <laughs> and well, guess what? I get to hop in my car and drive home. I'm not on a bus, so my, it's not so bad. No doubt, man. No doubt. Hey, thanks, Josh. I really appreciate it. You got it, man. Have a great night. Thank you, Tiger. Appreciate it. This episode of the Behind the You podcast was brought to you by the University of Miami's Division of Continuing and International Education. Change the course of your career or find your new passion. Both are possible at the University of Miami's Division of Continuing and International Education. The division offers over 50 courses with online and hybrid options for on-the-go professionals and busy parents. Visit miami.edu slash DCIE to learn more or call your enrollment advisors at 305-284-4000 to discover which course is right for you.